at the time the Sand Hills came along, most of the courses being built in the world were demographically driven. The principle was you had to have population to support the courses. And the courses went where people wanted to go. Dick flipped that 180 degrees, <laughs> built a course where the average population is two people per square mile. He was doing the, uh, <laughs> well, the proverbial field of dreams. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired This is The Fire Pit with Matt Janella. Welcome back. Settle in. Episode 7 is more on the partnership that I consider the best in the era of modern minimalist golf course architecture. Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw are currently building their 30th course in 35 years of working together. The two stories we tell today are about the Kapalua Plantation course on Maui and Sand Hills in Nebraska. Both have had significant impact on their careers, as well as golf in America. In episode six, part one of Core and Crenshaw, we told the story of Bill and Ben's early influences as it relates to course design, how they met, who was involved, and why they decided to team up. We left off in 1985. Bill Core of a small town in North Carolina already had worked for Pete Dye and had worked on or built three courses all in Texas, Waterwood National, King's Crossing, and Rockport Country Club. I knew I liked certain courses and certain things, and I'd try to figure out why, but I, I really wasn't that much into it. And when I saw what Pete was doing, a little public course called Oak Hollow in High Point, I just said, gee, this is different. I wonder how you do this. Meanwhile, Ben Crenshaw was the Masters champion in 1984. And in 1985, Ben had married Julie. He had started working with Scotty Sayers, a lifetime friend who became his business manager. And physically, he had health issues, which was causing problems both on and off the course. And yet, after meeting Bill and walking Rockport Country Club, he had decided he found a guy who shared the same design philosophies. Bill Corr was the partner Ben needed to build golf courses. It was it was just unbelievable how this happened. 1985. 1985 is when we decided to make a go at this. And that was the year I married Julie. So I made two really good decisions. <laughs> but it was Bill who resisted the idea of partnering with someone for the sake of a name. He, he wasn't really interested. You know, I can understand that. And when I, it finally he came around and he said, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we could give this a go. Which brings us back to the end of 1985. Bill, Ben, and Scotty were in on this partnership. Julie Crenshaw still had her doubts. And I was like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, because uh, he, he was struggling with his health, struggling with his game. Uh, we just got married. We weren't even certain if he was ever going to play competitive golf again. Having been told for a few years and by several potential clients that they liked his work, but that if he partnered with a recognizable name, it would help sell the finished product, Core was already noticing that Crenshaw was getting their team seats at bigger and better meetings. And there was even some interest from national media. 
Ben knew and I knew Ron Whitten, whom you've known for so many years, who was the architectural editor of Golf Digest. Ron Whitten came to Austin to interview us for a story to do about uh, this partnership we had found. Now, obviously, that story, the whole foundation of it is, is Ben's reputation and background and playing career. And here he is. Mm-hmm. He's going to get involved in this, in this design partnership. But Ron Whitten comes in with a tape recorder. And we're going to have this interview. He turns the tape recorder on. He lays it on the table. And the first question he asks is, so you've formed this design partnership. What's the name of the company? And there's just silence. We had never talked about it. I'm not sure I'd ever thought about it. Ben is the one who spoke up and he said, the name of the company is Coor and Crenshaw. There was no reason not to put Bill up front. He's the, he's the man. And, you know, I'll tell you what, even to this day, uh, Bill leads our team. He's the leader. When asked later, I remember asking him afterwards, how'd you come up with that? And he goes, it's in alphabetical order. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds better. It sounds better. Ben makes a good point. Core and Crenshaw sounds better than Crenshaw and Core. But I asked Ben, when he says Bill is the leader, what exactly does that mean? Interest supersedes length. And yeah, the whole world is, is enamored with length. But interest is what I saw in Rockport Country Club. Pete Dye, Roy Dye, Rod Whitman, Jack Nicholas, Dave Carey, Charlie Belair, Mike McKay, and Jerry Scrooge Clark were all key to this match, which one developer predicted would be a, quote, disaster. At the start, he actually looked smart. We started two projects. That was our goal, to try to do two courses at once, you know, at the same time. If anyone would ever hire us, we weren't sure that was ever going to happen. But it did. We began two projects. Uh, Neither one of them were completed. Both of them, uh, we actually had holes roughed in ready for irrigation, and they both uh, fell by the way uh, during the savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s. And uh, <laughs> in the process of, of that, we, we committed to two other projects, and lo and behold, the same thing happened. So we spent the first two years of our partnership producing zero nothing. I guess it was maybe a year and a half or could have been two years after he wrote the initial piece for Golf Digest. And he, in it, he said that we were the only two people that ever formed a design partnership and then immediately retired because that's what it looked like we had done. We produced nothing. The cupboard was a little bare. <laughs> of the four courses they started, the first was in Austin, which was called Uplands. The second, in Magnolia, they had shaped 11 greens before they stopped the project. Almost 30 years later, that property became Blue Jack National, a Tiger Woods design. The third Corn Crenshaw misfire was in Baltimore, and the fourth was in Colorado, two miles from where they'd eventually build the Colorado Golf Club. I asked Bill if the start stops were important to getting them where they needed to go as a team. I can't 
truthfully say I've ever given it, thought about it in that way. But instantly my reaction is yes. It was a very, in spite of the fact to have frustrating and difficult it was, uh, it, it gave us the opportunity to spend time together on site with the guys, with, um, uh, you know, in the process of shaping in holes and, and, and uh, going from concepts to on the ground, uh, you know, reality. And um, it, it was invaluable, you know, looking back on it. It was, it was, uh, it's, it, in some ways, it, it could very well have been the best thing that could have happened. Back in the late 80s, Ben had a full-time job on the PGA Tour. In 1988, he had 10 top 10s. He won Doral, finished top 20 in all four majors, which included a fourth at the Masters. Bill's only income was building golf courses, and he needed a win. He found one doing a solo project in France. The company had to do a loan. And I'll assure you that loan was underwritten not by my financial statement. It was by Ben's and Scotty's. And so that we could stay in business. And and the other part of that, Matt, you're correct. I went to went to France. We did a golf course in Bordeaux, done golf du Medoc for uh, a guy who became such a good friend through the years, uh, Bernard Pascasio. And Bill perception of golf is totally, 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 and in mine, mine. Uh, I, I both like traditional golf course, you know, in a, like uh, Murfield uh, in Scotland or Pine Valley or uh, Cypress Point, uh, which are the, the same time approachable for the, for the amateur and competitive for the professional player. Bernard Pascasio dipped in and out of the European Tour from 1971 to 1989. He won 15 tournaments in France and played in nine World Cups. The Chateau course at Golf de Médoc opened in 1989 and is considered one of the best courses in France. To this day, it remains the only core, or core and Crenshaw, design in Europe. Uh, Bill is a real strategy genius and uh, uh, respectful of nature. Uh, Bill is uh, honest and I respect him very much. I am proud and happy to know him and the best in friend, you know. Back in Texas and still in the 80s, they had another bite. Scotty Sayers' stepfather was helping develop Barton Creek in Austin. The first course went to Tom Fazio, Corin Crenshaw were on deck. It was an average piece of property, and I think Ben and Bill did a, a great job, and there were environmental concerns all along the way that slowed that project down and, um, and really delayed that job where it actually opened after Kapalua. Kapalua Resort on Maui's North Shore was building more golf. Mark Rolfing, affectionately known as Mr. Hawaii, and prior to working for NBC and the Golf Channel, was put in charge. I got involved in the plantation development and kind of took the lead role in putting together the golf part of it. Colin Cameron, who was the chairman of Maui Land and Pineapple Company, they put in the land, we did a joint venture, and he said, you're responsible for the golf, you figure out how to do it. So off I went interviewing golf course architects and had no idea 
what I was wanting from them because I had no idea really what I wanted. It was um, it was kind of the blind leading the blind in a little bit of a way. And, uh, you know, somehow I started talking to Ben Crenshaw. It was a seminal uh, golf course in our, in our career. And, you know, it just, it's just amazing. It happened to coincide with my marriage as well. It's got all these uh, other dimensions in it. And it was a, it was a piece of property that I saw first. And he told me about this relationship that he had developed with Bill Core. said, you've got to meet this man. You have got to meet this man. Ben was, um, was at Kapalua, he and Julie, and he called and he said, Bill, there's a, there's a site here I, I think we should consider, uh, you know, working with. And um, I remember asking him on the phone, I said, what does it look like, Ben? I saw it and I saw plantation fields out there, with pineapple everywhere, absolutely gorgeous. And he, Bill said, what does it look like? And I said, well, it looks like land gently rising from the sea. I'd never been there. I, did, I hadn't seen it. I, but somehow rising gently from the sea conjured up images in my mind that didn't quite match what I saw when I first got there and, and went out with Mark Rolfing. We're standing out there where now the clubhouse, basically where the clubhouse is now. I was looking backward up the hill where the 18th hole is now, looking down the hill, you know, as well toward where the first hole is. And I'm just, I'm speechless. I, I just, I, I God, it's got a lot of elevation changes and slope, and it's, it's beautiful. It's stunningly beautiful, but uh, I just, I really didn't know quite what to say other than I, I finally, I looked at, at Mark and I said, Mark, when you and Ben were here and he called me, I said, what were you doing? And he said, we brought a couple of Coronas and we watched the sunset. And I, I couldn't help it, Matt. I just said, well, Mark, I hate to ask this question, but how many Coronas did you have? <laughs> it took me about 10 minutes before I fell in love with Bill Coor. And, uh, and from that day on, it was like, you know, talking to the same person. Uh, I remember asking Bill, you know, well, what's going to happen if you and Ben aren't here at the same time? And he said, it doesn't matter. When you're talking to me, you're talking to him. When you're talking to him, you're talking to me. And boy, was he right. When you get on the upper parts of the property, there's there's just the most beautiful sights and and place. It's a big part of the dimension of of how how the the property climbs and then goes back down towards the clubhouse. You know, for anyone who's been there, there's 500 feet elevation change between the 17th tee and the like the second green. And so uh, we would we'd be out there working and I just couldn't help it. But almost every opportunity I got when Ben was there, I would just somehow say, you know, this is so, so good. It's so easy to work with. And it just rises gently from the sea. <laughs> they made you believe that they were going to come up with something that really fit the place. And um, they did. You got to remember, too, there was a big tournament going on here then. So for their first real project, 
not only did they have an elevation change of over 400 feet, 700 acres, they had to play a PGA Tour event on it. That is a very difficult combination of elements and, and sort of ingredients in what had to be cooked up. But it never faced them. And, uh, you know, every time Bill would scratch his head, Ben would smile and laugh. And, and uh, I, I knew they would figure it out. Kapalua Plantation opened in 1991 and has been the host of the PGA Tour's Century Tournament of Champions since 1999. It had to be a golf course with enormous scale uh, in terms of the, the size of the features, the fairways, the, the greens, um, to be just to be playable. I know. We, we look back and just go, you know, it's different. It's a very different type of golf course. And I have to say, even today, 30 years later or whatever, I don't think we would have done it differently. I asked Mark Rolfing, what would have happened to Corin Crenshaw if they didn't beat out guys like Palmer, Nicholas, and Fazio for the plantation job? Ben and Bill's business was a fledgling business at the time. As you say, they've been at it a couple of times. Uh, I think this was a critical time for them and had the plantation project fallen through for whatever reasons, you know, a recession or, you know, the Gulf War, if we hadn't got in ahead of that, uh, who knows? Uh, I think their careers could have been uh, decidedly different. A funny thing about that is early in the company's history, as we were doing the course for Mark Rolfing, uh, Mark offered us, you know, at, at that time, our fee, I think, was $250,000. And Mark said, well, we'll either give you your fee or you can have a lot here. Well, we had a bank loan to pay off, and Ben and Bill and I wanted to take a salary, and we had some employees to pay at that time, so we took the money. And I think that lot sold for about $5 million. That was one of the most enjoyable times of my entire career, broadcast or anything else. Uh, I just loved working with Ben and Bill. And, you know, when, when they came in and started this, Matt, there was no Coor and Crenshaw style. You know, there, there was no Sandhills. There was no Friars Head. There was no Old Sandwich. So you didn't know what the style was going to be. And the thing I loved about them was I think part of their theories evolved through the plantation course. So that's sort of landmark number one of the of the. Core Crenshaw events. Kapalua really brought attention to us. The phone started ringing in the office. People were talking about uh, golf courses. And I'm not sure where Dick Young's cap actually heard about us or what we were doing, but he started coming around in about 1992. And uh, we were just wondering what, you know, what is this guy thinking about doing a course up in the middle of Nebraska? Dick Youngscap was a developer from Lincoln, Nebraska, who in 1990 was offered a deal on 8,100 acres of land in Mullen. Population, 463. Youngscap had a hunch and a vision. Now he needed money and someone to build a golf course. Core and Crenshaw weren't a hard sell. Others had their doubts. Ben and Scotty and I were all in the office. That doesn't happen very often, but we were all there. Uh, Dick gets on the phone, introduces himself, and, and he's, uh, he's talking about this property that he's, he's looking at in, uh, in Nebraska. And instantly he says, Nebraska, I'm thinking, you know, flat, probably maybe 
maybe not the most interesting property in the world, uh, likely. And then Dick very quickly says it's in an area called the Sand Hills in Nebraska. Light bulbs go on that for me and for Ben. I had a magazine that I had uh, subscribed to, and it was it was a it was an artist. It was a Texas artist magazine, and in in this thing, it had, it did a layout on the cattle ranches of Nebraska. I kept looking at these old photos, and I got it looks just like Britain and Ireland and Scotland, rolling sand hills, sand hills of Nebraska. As for Bill, he first met Ron Witten in the late 70s, back in Huntsville, Texas. Witten, still an assistant district attorney, was writing a book about golf course architecture and stopped in at Waterwood. I said something about what's the best land for golf you've ever seen. He said, Nebraska. I go, Nebraska? Hey, what are you talking about? He said, Bill, there's a place called Sand Hills in Nebraska. He said, it's just some of the most magnificent land for golf I have ever seen anywhere in the world. And then in the late 80s, Bill was at Prairie Dunes in Kansas, walking with Doug Peterson, who was the superintendent at the time. I was walking down the 8th fairway with Doug and looking at those heaving contours in the, in the dunes that Perry Maxwell just laid that incredible, that hole on. And I said to Doug, I said, Doug, can you imagine having a piece of property like this to work with? And I remember distinctly, Matt, Doug looked at me and he goes, Bill, I know where there's land better than this. And I look at him and go, what? What are you talking about? How can anything be better than this? He said, well, maybe it's not better. It's just more of it. <laughs> and he said, in the sand hills of Nebraska. Well, needless to say, Bill was in. Let's go see it. Let's, let's, let's go see it. So, yeah, Ben and Scotty and I uh, all went up there to get our first look at what would become Sand Hills Golf Club. We flew up, and we could tell from North Platte, we kind of cast our eyes up to the north and said, God almighty, look at these dunes. There are dunes everywhere. And so he took us up in this helicopter, and it was the damnedest sight the rest of the day. And looking at all this property, we're going, oh, my God, it's so vast. We had no idea. And Dick wanted us to go up north, which was, God, 45 miles up north of North Platte. And we're seeing great ground wherever we looked. So we couldn't figure that out. But we had never seen anything like it, man. The, the, everywhere you looked, you just felt like this is just incredible. It's incredible. Why on earth has this not become a, a golf mecca? It wasn't exactly love at first sight for all of Team Corn Crenshaw. Scotty went with us up there to meet Dick Young's cap to look at this site. Poor Scotty got, they had a van. And admittedly, as Ben said, there's a helicopter there. So Ben and I get in this helicopter. Now we're flying all over. We're not talking about a mile or two. We're talking many miles, looking at all these different dunes, and we had to land, and then we get out. Dick Youngscap is in the van with Scotty in the back, and they're trying to keep up with us in the helicopter. 
And so about seven of us get back in this Suburban and Ben and Bill fly off in the helicopter. And we spent the next six hours chasing Ben and Bill in the helicopter, uh, going all over Nebraska, it seemed like. And in the meantime, the picnic basket was in the back of the van with me and about 500 flies had gotten into the van. And I'm just thinking, boy, this day has got to get over with pretty quick. Yeah, Ben and I are so excited. We're looking at all these dunes. Poor Scotty is trying not to get sick in the back of the car going around up and down over these hills. That are... So his impressions when you talk to him of the introduction to the sand hills would be quite different than ours. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Those are the big, biggest, meanest flies I've ever seen. Poor Scotty. The best was yet to come. I tormented Scotty. I said, look, Scotty said, we'll do, we'll do this for nothing. And he just, Scotty said, oh, no, we can't do that. Bill, Bill, when we got, Bill and I got there, our minds started turning. So how are we going to make this work? Where people can think we're crazy going all the way up from North Platte, 40 miles. Is, why isn't it closer to civilization? All these questions. So Young's Cap had his answer to who was going to build the golf course. But the time he had to raise the money to pay for both the land and the golf had an expiration date. Meanwhile, Mike Kaiser of Recycled Greeting Cards in Chicago was on a similar path to remote sand-based minimalism. Kaiser had built the Dunes Club, a nine-hole private but non-pretentious hang in New Buffalo, Michigan, and he had found a stretch of gorse-choked dunes along the southwest coast of Oregon. So Ron Witten from Golf Digest said, Mike, if you don't mind, I'm going to introduce you to Dick Youngscap because I like what you've done here at the Dunes Club, which is built on sand. And I've got this guy who's got this great site, and uh, you should talk to him. So I ended up talking to Dick Youngscap. I don't remember if he called me, which I think is the case. And Dick said, I need a money guy. And I said, uh, you know, I've already bought land in Bandon. And I'm trying to assemble the money and the courage to build out there. And you've got this remote site in Mullen, Nebraska, and you want me to double down with two highly speculative ventures. I'll tell you what, I know you're going to buy the land and I'll be part of your uh, partnership that is buying the land, but you've got to find someone to help you pay for Sand Hills. Jim Simons was that guy. Young's cap was originally allocated 1,000 acres along the Dismal River. Simons would take the other 7,100 acres for ranching. But the fundraising didn't stop at the land. Fresh off the success of the plantation course, Mark Rolfing was back in the mix. And they kept saying to me, we'd like to get you involved. And I, I just really had no interest. I thought it was one of the stupidest ideas I'd ever heard of, a private club in the middle of Nebraska. Dick is a single-minded individualist. I mean, they don't make any more people like Dick Young's cap. He, he possesses very strong opinions. He knows what he wants. And he's an architect. He's a building architect by trade. So he has some semblance of building things. And he has his opinions. But I cannot tell you what a gift uh, that he gave us in the opportunity 
to do something that had never been tried, really. It, it's, I mean, the most remote location that anybody could ever think of. Uh, but I, in a way, I felt a little obligated, Matt, I think. And, and finally, I let him talk me into going up there one day. We flew up from uh, Austin, Texas, three of us, me and Ben and Bill, and looked at the property. And I'll never forget walking out there with young Scap and three or four other guys and, and looking at this thing. And Ben was saying, can't you just see, you know, these holes, look at how the, these holes are just going to lay. I couldn't see anything. I looked in every direction. And all I kept saying was, where's the hotel going to go? You know, okay, how, how about the condos? Where are we going to build the condos? And as we started talking more and more, I realized that that was not what they had in mind at all. And then I thought, what am I doing here? Very early on, you become aware that um, the site is so good that if you don't produce one of the world's outstanding golf courses, you failed. It's that simple. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's some sites you get that are, you know, you don't have to do very much to to make them far, far better than, than what you expect. But the Sandhills... Um, there was great potential there to go the wrong way. And we knew it. And, and that was mostly tied into what you said, the fact that you could build the hope, you could go in so many directions. At first glance, or even after being out there for days and days, you, you begin to think you can go in any direction until you launch off and start walking through those dunes and realizing what you think is pretty calm ground. Suddenly, you just disappear. I mean, in, in huge valleys and holes and, and big ridges. And uh, so it's, it's not like you just could go in any direction, but you certainly had huge numbers of options. Um, I, I have to say the one, the one thing that's kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of gotten me a few times is I've heard people say, "Oh, you could build holes anywhere. It didn't matter where you put them. You could just, you could just build them anywhere. It would have been just as good." Um, I'm not sure that's the case, man. I'll never forget Ben and I went up to the public course in Mullen, about ten miles to the. To the north that day and we went up there to, to meet some of the local folks and uh, saw the sign when we went in it was great it said nine holes five dollars little nine hole course nine holes five dollars 18 holes three dollars so i asked the kid in the shop i said how can it be cheaper to play 18 holes uh than nine holes and he said we're trying to encourage play and i said that's fabulous um i i fell in love with uh I fell in love with Sand Hills that day, and uh, it's, it's just a marvel. And uh, when I saw the budget, uh, when I realized what we were going to do was build a golf course and a clubhouse at Sand Hills for less money than we spent on the cart paths, just the cart paths at the plantation course, I said, wow, how can I turn this down? So um, it, it was really an amazing project. The deal gets done. There's going to be golf in Mullen, but it meant a lot to Young's Cap that this was well received by the locals. Here's more from Core. The coal trains. I mean, I can't. Hundreds of cars, I think, on the coal trains that are probably coming from Wyoming back towards Chicago, and they go through right through Mullen, Nebraska. And I was, um, 
I was sitting there waiting one day. It just stopped, waiting as the train just inched by, it seemed, knowing it was going to be a long, long time. And I saw a fellow in the pickup truck behind me, and uh, he got out of his truck, and he walked up next to the truck I was in. He just kind of looked at me, and smiled, and said, you must be one of the golf course fellas. And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, I reckon you'll be building something out there that looks like what we see on television with water, green grass, trees. I said, no, sir, I don't think you'll see any water. I don't think you'll see a tree unless it just happens to be a volunteer that's there. And I don't think you'll see very much green grass. I said, it'll be green of a shade, but more like olive or, you know, green than than bright green. Uh, I said, um, it's just not the way we would envision something happening out here in in these dunes. And he goes, no water, no trees. I go, no water, no trees, no bright green grass. No, no bright. He goes, I like that. I like that. And he turned around, he walked back and he got in his truck. That was probably my first time of thinking, you know, this place is so special, but we really need to do something here, not just for golf, but something that, uh, um, if at all possible, will make these, these folks proud that it's there. In order to share his vision with the locals, Young's Cap, whose brother-in-law was a rancher in the area, went as far as putting pictures of courses like Royal County Down of Northern Ireland in storefront windows throughout Mullen. These people thought we were came from Mars or something. I said, what? You're going to do what out here? You know, it's basically cattle grazing. And they're very independent. They're very proud of the way that they live and they work. But gently, you know, through Dick Youngscap and his uh, his relatives, you know, had to talk to the local people and say, "Look, these people are okay. Don't you know? It's going to work out fine." We were gently sort of embraced, but man, uh, they mean so much to us because they brought us in. They didn't have to. And who doesn't love a story about pink flags in the prairie? I was by myself walking out in the dunes on the, right on what is now the 10th fairway at Sandhills Golf Club. But I was just walking my blue jeans and boots, and, and uh, I had a bundle of those surveyor flags, and they were bright fuchsia pink. And so I could see them well. And if I found a, a certain situation for what felt like an interesting green site or a tea site followed by a landing area in a green site. Just I was just flagging, and I'm making little notations on a piece of paper I had. But so I'm standing there with a bouquet of bright flags, and up over the dune ridge from the valley comes a, a herd of cattle. I, I don't know how many. I didn't try to count them, but there was there had to have been at least 150 or 200 head of cattle coming right up over the dune ridge where I was. And they rode up. First of all, I'm staying there. The cattle come in completely surround me. I am just, I'm, I'm like the hole in a donut of cattle. And they slowly weave through the cattle and come up to me and, 
One guy looks at me, goes, what are you doing? I said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm looking for golf holes. Matt, the guy's like a scene out of a movie. This guy leans over in his saddle. He looks at me, he looks at the pink flags. He looks back at his three um, companions there. And he just, he says, man's looking for golf holes. They all kind of look at me like I'm just some lunatic, of course. And he goes, well, good luck to you, fellow. And off they go. Not sure how much luck Cord needed, but believe it or not, he needed more land. Here we are. We're out here on a thousand acres, man. And we lay out the golf course and we look at everything. We're, we're pretty happy. And then one day, Ben and I both go out there and we start looking just a little, little further out. And we didn't know quite where the thousand acre boundary was, but we go out there and boy, you know, that looks pretty good over there. Let's, let's walk over there and see what that could look like. We got over there and thought, yeah, that looks pretty nice. You could go over here and then you could go. And it ended up being a kind of a, not really a triangle, but kind of an odd shaped piece back there. And we just immediately changed the routing and put our holes out there. And obviously we weren't doing any construction, but Dick comes out probably the next day and he comes out and we say, Dick, we're going to, we, we want to go out here and there. And he just stands there and he goes, that's not on our ground. That's on the ground that he gave to Jim Simon. That's not on our, and he basically said, how on earth can you not get 18 holes on a thousand acres of ground? <laughs> Young's Cap got that land. Cor and Crenshaw got the ultimate routing. Mike Kaiser got a low score. I had certainly been invited many times, and I did not go because I was going to man and just trying to figure out what to do with that. Uh, so I, ha- I didn't see uh, Sand Hills until I went there with three friends to play an inaugural round, basically a preview round. The course was uh, probably putting at six down the stint meter, so it was really new. And little did I know until that day that slow greens are a lot easier to putt on, Matt. You know this than greens that are primed and go at 12. So I actually shot a 73, my all-time best score. And that's my my first and lasting impression of Sand Hills was that's where I shot a 73 on this totally natural sand, sand hills in Nebraska. And that was also Kaiser's first impression of Corn Crenshaw. Boy, did they do a masterful job in as much as they didn't seem to have touched anything. You know, you've heard that they found 120 holes and had trouble going it down to eight, boiling it down to 18. Um, what I didn't know, and that, that was their claim, is they didn't move much sand. It was obvious to my foursome. We're all avid and knowledgeable golfers that this was a, this defined minimalism. As for Crenshaw, he offers more credit to Core for the routing. He has a way of doing it that's entirely natural. You know, he once said, he said, you know, if you, if you're, if you're an animal and you just follow the way that they make these trails and yeah, it's maybe the path of least resistance as you go around. And if you go by the idea of, so if you're just kind of having a walkabout about a piece of property, he has a way of doing that, that, that it, it fits. 
And, and, you know, Matt, one of the hardest things that we had to do there is actually put the directions of the holes and where they went, what sequence, um, because it, it was daunting because we knew we'd never get a piece of property like that again. I remember when the, when the golf course was just about to open and Ben and I went out to play and we were on the, uh, we were, we were just near the 16th green uh, and just the two of us. And I remember asking Ben, I said, Ben, would you change anything? You think we missed anything? Do you think, do you, do you, what do you think? And he said, Bill, I, I wouldn't change it. I think it's good. I like it. I like it. And we're talking about exactly where you were there, Matt. The flow, the sequence, the variety of the holes, the way they fit on the on the landforms. Um, and that was without question our biggest fear going into it. And even to this day, man, I've spent so much time out there. Yeah, and and both in those early years and and walking those dunes and in the site and I, I have yet to walk out there and go, wow, we should have gone over there. We should have done that. We could have, but I, it's just, I just haven't second guessed it. And uh, for me, and particularly on that site, to say that is, 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 is pretty big. For some final reflections, here's Mike Kaiser. What I would say about Dick Young's gap is sort of publicity shy, oddly, because he's not a shy man. He had the courage of his convictions. He, he saw this land in Mullen, Nebraska and said, I see a golf course there and saw it all the way through. And, you know, to this day, when you're out there, you scratch your head and said, who was the brave man who decided to put it all together in Sand Hills? Especially given his background, he'd already done one with Pete Dye and Lincoln and could easily have rested on his laurels because that was a very well-regarded golf course. But no, he found this land in Nebraska just as I later, just as I found land in Bandon and decided to repurpose himself as the builder of remote golf courses in the middle of nowhere. And boy, did it work out, Matt. Mark Rolfing on why Cor and Crenshaw have become so successful. If you traded voices between Dick Young's cap and Mike Kaiser, they can almost be the same person in, in a lot of ways too. They remind me a lot of each other. And, um, you know, that's that's the kind of people that, that Ben and Bill are attracted to, no-nonsense people. And I think when you're not taking jobs on the fly and high-risk jobs and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, do things that the environment may not dictate there, you're never gonna be uh, as successful as they've been because they went to the right places. They were very selective. Uh, they worked hard at it and um, they deserve everything that they've gotten out of it. In part one for Ben Crenshaw, finding Bill Corr was about fate. At Sand Hills, they both needed a little faith. You had these people who, in the, you know, in the personage of Dick Young's cap who wanted to do this thing, and, and it was, you know, you talk about a bold leap, uh, putting it out there somewhere where we, we, we all had just hoped that people would come to see it and enjoyment and, and enjoy it because it was something different. 
but it, the land was so blessed that we just didn't, you know, we didn't build so much there. We just followed nature there. Here's Scotty Sayers on what Sand Hills meant for business. And after that, uh, the opportunities for our company exploded. I mean, the phone was ringing all the time and we had more and more great opportunities to build courses. And I don't want to pick on any courses to say that they were better than others, because there was a period where we did Old Sandwich, we did Hidden Creek, we did Austin Golf Club, we did East Hampton Golf Club, but we did Friar's Head. And so there's landmark number three, and that's another course that immediately brought us uh, a lot of attention because of the spectacular nature of it um, and the fact that it was it sat on Long Island where a lot of people could take a look at it. The fourth big one for the company is Bandon, uh, getting a chance to work for Mike Kaiser uh, certainly changed our world. And Mike has been so good to us over the years. It's been, as you know, Matt, we've had a chance to do Bandon Trails. We did the Preserve, uh, we did Cabot. Uh, Mike was a part of Lost Farm down in Tasmania, uh, Sand Valley, and now we've got the Sheep Ranch coming along. So, you know, that relationship was kind of the fourth landmark, and then I'd say the fifth was Pinehurst. Crenshaw again on their collection of work. We're, I mean, we're not prolific. We'll never be prolific, but I don't think that people, some people have had some of the best experiences that we've had working with people and in certain environs. And finally, I asked Bill Coor if he thought they could have ever achieved such a deep portfolio without Sand Hills. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I wouldn't say no unequivocally, but I would say it would be extraordinarily unlikely that we could have. The Sand Hills, um, it was such a special site that Dick gave us. And, and he gave us the freedom to work with that site. And yeah, Matt, we didn't know. We didn't know. I get asked sometimes people say, oh, gee, did you know this was going to be a watershed event in, in golf architecture? No, we didn't know that. We didn't know. We never talked about it. We never thought about it. All we thought about is how can we make the most of this site and this opportunity we've been given. But once it came online, and it seemed to have struck a chord, so to speak, uh, with with the golfing world, and and of course part of that was because it was so different than what was prevalent at the time. But it was a it it it, it just became the cornerstone of people being aware that we are one in this business, but two that we have an affinity for this type of ground. Do you guys have a favorite fire pit that you've stumbled upon or use on a regular basis? Matt, you know, I, I have to say, um, my favorite happens to be in our backyard. Uh, <laughs> That's the best kind of fire pit. Yeah, you know, you and I both travel so much. Well, not right now, obviously, but generally so much. And 
yeah, there's a fireplace in the in the back that we that that we like to go uh, uh, to, to hang out in the in the evenings. But uh, beyond that, um, it, it's pretty darn hard to beat the one at Bandon, you know. The one that's out there with the crackling fire at night and the people around and telling their golf stories and the, uh, the you know, their adventures of the day. Yeah. yeah. Ben? I'd have to second that, that fire pit there. Uh, it's great to see, you know, the, 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 well, once again, the pleasure. And you've got, Bandon is, it's just so ideal for a foursome or two foursomes to get together and play. And, you know, it's chilly at night and that fireplace really feels good and it it uh, it does make all the golfers conjure up memories of the day it's 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 uh it's very convivial and it's the way you end the day and you look forward to the next one but uh i i, I agree i agree that's a good one and i would again uh embellish just briefly on what Bannon said. We've been so fortunate to work with so many wonderful clients, wonderful people, gifted sites. We've gotten far more than our fair share to work with. And, uh, and we're just very grateful. But I have to say, we're grateful for the time we've spent with you too. I know that hard. I know. I, know. <laughs> I can't believe I'm so glad I got this on record. <laughs> no, Matt. Matt. Bill, Bill is exactly right. We 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 uh, we've enjoyed our time with you. It's great to see you. Great to talk golf with you. Yeah, thank you again, gentlemen. I uh, I you know this is this has been a treat and a pleasure. For God's sakes, stay safe out there. We need you guys to uh, keep doing what you're doing, and um, and look forward to seeing you out there in the dirt somewhere someday soon. And uh, yeah, likewise, we hope everybody's safe, including you and your family. Are you looking for good value on great golf apparel? As a listener to this podcast, my friends John Ashworth and Jeff Cunningham at Link Soul in Oceanside, California are offering you a 25% discount on all future orders of what I wear all day, every day, on and off the course. Whenever you go to linksoul.com, just use promo code MATTYG25, M-A-T-T-Y-G-25. Thank you for listening to The Fire Pit. It's produced by Alex Upegi. It's edited by Rex Lint. The theme song is by Joe Horowitz. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and we might track you down and send you one of our new Imperial Rope Hats. Got a question, comment, or a story for us to track down? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Janella or on Instagram at Matt underscore Janella. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Fire Pit on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to a story like this one. You can also subscribe to our 